Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today and tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you're, you're, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your silver and gold have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together for just a second and ask God to help us as we take a couple of minutes and look together this morning at the scripture. Father, we ask now that you would come and work in our hearts by your spirit. Lord, we believe that we need to hear what you have to say to us today through the Bible. And so God, we ask that you would give us soft hearts, that you would give us ears to hear, that what is spoken to us today through your word would not just go in one ear and out the other, but that it would, by your grace, be at work changing us. So, Jesus, we ask that you would come and do that good gospel work in our hearts now, because when left to ourselves, we will turn away from you. When left to ourselves, we will ignore you. We need you to come and pick us up. We need you to turn us back to you. And so, Father, do that this morning through this small part of your word. Father, be at work. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. A great 80s song by Tears for Fears is titled, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Love that song. Very catchy. Hopefully it'll get in your head and you can listen to it this afternoon. Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Um, that's a great song. And actually, I didn't even have this plan for the beginning of the sermon until I listened to that song this morning. Very holy music to listen to as you're getting ready to preach. But that's what I was listening to. It, it really sums up very well what James is warning us against in these verses today. Really what James is speaking to us about as we near the end of his letter is the importance of us who are followers of Jesus of learning to live within limits. In fact, of learning to embrace limits. The theologian Steve Garber has written a great book and the way he describes this idea is through this phrase. He says that we must learn to live proximately. Learn to live proximately. And what he means by that is that when we try as humans who are fallen and who are limited to be ultimate, when we try to rule the world, things go really, really badly. They go badly for us. They go badly for our relationships. And ultimately, they go, they go bad for the whole world. So it's important for those who are trying to follow Jesus on the journey towards wholeness, on the journey towards spiritual maturity that James has been laying out for us. It's important for us to understand and to live as if we are not, listen, as if we are not in control of everything, as if we are limited. That's what these verses are about. They're about living proximately. 
living within limits, living with wisdom. Garber writes at one point in his book called Visions of Vocation, proximate happiness is worthy of our deepest longings. James is calling the followers of Jesus through these verses to proximate happiness, to a happiness of embracing our own limits. Now, God, we've seen throughout James, week in and week out, is committed to making those who have trusted in Jesus complete. As James says in chapter 1, verse 4, he wants us to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And in every week of this series, which ends next week, by the way, we've seen that the Holy Spirit inspiring James to write this letter is calling us out, sometimes in very difficult ways, sometimes in heart-wrenching ways, in ways that require a ruthless self-reflection. He's calling us to see in our own lives what it is that is preventing us from being whole people to see in our lives what it is that's preventing us from growing into spiritual maturity, from growing into what I've been calling joyous integrity. And this morning, James is continuing to do that work for us as God is at work through his writing. And let's sum up the main idea this morning like this. The journey toward wholeness involves embracing our limits and trusting God. That's the big idea. The journey towards wholeness involves embracing our limits and trusting God. And really, there's three ways in this passage that James calls all of us to embrace our limits. And we'll look at those consecutively, but let me just lay it out right now. First, we're going to see we are to embrace our limits and don't judge people. Second, James says, embrace your limits and don't be presumptuous. And third, James says, embrace your limits and don't hoard money. Don't judge people. Don't be presumptuous. Don't hoard money. Those are all necessary aspects of us moving forward in maturity, in joyous integrity. So let's look at them just for a couple of minutes together this morning. First, James tells us in verses 11 and 12, especially of chapter 4, that the road to wholeness means embracing your limits and not judging people. Look at what he says there. Do not speak evil against one another. Or another way to translate that, do not slander one another. And given what James has just written about in the first part of chapter 4, that makes sense. When there's quarrels and fighting and dissension in a local church, often what results or what comes along with that is slander, is speaking evil against one another. And I, I think it's important for us to understand here just at the outset that James is not telling us here not to lie about one another although we shouldn't lie. (laughs) We shouldn't lie about each other either. James, rather, is telling us not to judge one another. To put it another way, what James is condemning here is arrogance or a breach of humility. That's the issue, not so much a breach of honesty. What does that mean practically? It practically means this. You can slander someone if what you say about them to someone else is completely true. You don't have to lie in order to speak evil against someone else. You can still display arrogance. And that's what James is warning us against here. That sort of behavior, that sort of speaking, he's saying, is still wrong in God's sight. And the reason it's wrong is because this action and this attitude fails to recognize. When we do this, we fail to recognize our own limitations and our own sinfulness. That's why James tells us that we are lawbreakers too. They're in verse 11 and in verse 12. And when we speak against others, we prove that we have yet to recognize our own position under the law. So immediately, right, these words should, 
They should cut right to your heart, no matter where you are spiritually. If you're a Christian or not a Christian, these words should speak to the deepest part of you and the darkest part of you. Theologian and author Jerry Bridges has written a book that he calls Respectable Sins. And one of the, quote, respectable sins is this sin, the sin of slander, the sin of speaking evil against one another. And Bridges says it's respectable because good, decent, moral, church-going folks are guilty of this sort of behavior very regularly. So it's important for us at a church service this morning to think about just for a couple of minutes. So let me ask you this rhetorical question. You don't need to respond. (laughs) Why? Why do we judge people? And let's let's be even more honest, okay? Um, Why does it so often feel so good? to say mean things or to make observations or to judge others for their words or their behavior or their shortcomings or their looks or their dress or any number of things. Why? Why do we love to sort of dig in to these judgmental patterns in our life? Here's what James says. We love it because it makes us feel godlike to a, you know, a silly and pathetic degree. It makes us feel godlike. That's the point of verse 12. There's only one lawgiver and judge, James says. Who are you to judge your neighbor? In other words, when you and I speak against and judge and slander, we're doing it often because it gives us a form of power. It gives us a form of power over others. Really, that's what sin in its very essence is. And the very first act of sin, way back in Genesis chapter 3, Satan tempts Eve and Adam by saying that if you do this, you will be like God, right? You remember that? If you're familiar with your Bibles, you might know that story. That's that's what all sin is. Sin is our temptation to knock God off of his throne and sit there ourselves. And that's why we all, deep down at times, maybe all the time, really kind of love and get a kick out of being judgmental, out of slandering other people. And God is calling us this morning through James to fight against this sort of behavior, to fight against being judgmental by embracing our limits. That's why he writes there, who are you to judge others? In other words, listen, if you see yourselves rightly in light of the good news of Christianity, in light of the gospel, then you can begin to change and move towards wholeness in this area of life. I mean, to put it very simply, Would you want other people to treat you in the way you're treating people when you speak against them or slander them or judge them either in your head or through your words to someone else? No, none of us want that. We know it's not fair. We know it's hypocritical. So who are we to do so? James is saying. And then furthermore, and very importantly, when we understand the power of the gospel, we can change in this regard. We can move forward towards integrity. How does that work? Listen, the gospel says that God knows all of our shortcomings and failures, and further, that God has a right to judge us. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says that every man is destined to die once and to face judgment, to face the judgment of God. But the gospel says that rather than condemning us, God forgives us and condemns Jesus in our place at the cross. 
Now, that is the great, remarkable love of God displayed for us in the death of Jesus. And so as we rest in that truth more and more, the Holy Spirit begins to root out, to root out of our lives all the judgmental attitudes and words that we're so used to. Put it this way. If God, who has a right to judge us, forgives us and treats us as friends instead, then how can we, who don't have a right to judge others, speak evil against them? The more we see and believe how God treats us in the gospel, the more we can treat others with the love Jesus calls us to. The more we can recognize how limited we we are. We are not the judge. We are not God. So stop speaking against one another. So we are to embrace our limits and not judge or slander others. Secondly, James tells us we're to embrace our limits and not be presumptuous. That's the point of verses 13 through 17. They're at the end of chapter four. Another way you can summarize that is like this. God here through James is rebuking, and that's not too strong of a word. He is rebuking those of us who think that we can live without any reference to God. He's rebuking those of us who think that we can live without any reference to eternity. James is saying that it is arrogant of us to believe that we can make plans for our lives as if we are the captains of our own destinies, as if we are the arbiters of our own fate, as if we are the ones driving our ship and controlling everything. Now, James isn't saying here that you should just throw away all planning and scheduling and just, you know, live as the wind blows you, right? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you shouldn't plan and you shouldn't save and you shouldn't think about the future. Rather, what he's saying is that we should not arrogantly presume that we can make plans or plot out our futures and control the outcomes that we want, you see, that we can live without reference to God. That's living outside of the limits that we have as humans. That idea reminds me of one of my favorite books, The Count of Monte Cristo. Some of you might have read that. It's really long. The movies are all terrible, by the way. None of the movies are nearly as good as the book, which is almost always the case. So read the book. It's by Alexander Dumas, and the book is about a man named Edmond Dante. And Dante is falsely imprisoned by these wicked men who conspire against him. And he loses the love of his life, and he goes to this island prison at sort of the peak of his age, at a very young age when he has all of his life before him. And where he's imprisoned, he meets this man who's a priest, an Italian priest called Abi Feria. And uh, Feria teaches uh, Dante a lot of things. And, and then right before the priest dies, he tells Edmund Dante about this island called the Island of Monte Cristo, where hidden is this massive, you know, the, this unimaginable treasure. And through a really cool scheme, I'm not going to give it all away, Dante escapes prison and makes his way to the island of Monte Cristo and discovers this vast fortune. And he sees it initially as a gift from God to be used to get revenge, to get revenge against those who have conspired against him. And really, the last two-thirds of the book is about his pursuit of revenge against these people who've done him so wrong, right? And Really, it's a stunning display of vengeance. This guy's rich, he's very smart, and he's had a lot of time sitting in a cell, not doing much else, to think about how he's going to get back at these people. And so we watch him go through the story, perfectly executing this plan, but eventually his seemingly perfect plans go awry. 
and people that are innocent that he did not intend to punish actually end up losing their life. And really, the entire point of the novel is seen as Edmund Dante realizes in the end that what he has been doing is playing God and that he cannot control the future. You see, Dante has to realize that he as a human has limits, even with a vast fortune, even with brilliant planning. And the novel ends as he writes this letter to a friend. And the last line of the novel is this, I think, really profound sentence. Dante writes this in a moment of self-reflection and discovery. He says, until the day when God will deign to reveal the future to men, all human wisdom is contained in these two words, wait and hope. Wait and hope. In other words, a life of wholeness is the life that is lived before the face of God, that is lived quorum Deo, in conscious recognition of his control, of his sovereignty over all of our days. And so James is calling us here to not be presumptuous. So how are we presumptuous? Look at the text. There's a couple of things he says there in this very practical example in verses 13 through 15. We presume life, right? Today or tomorrow, we're going to go do this, right? We presume control. I'm going to go into such and such a town and I'm going to spend a year there. We presume ability. I'm going to trade and I'm going to make a profit. We assume that we know what is going to happen, right? But guess what? Listen, you don't have to be a Christian to sort of understand and agree with this principle, None of us really know what's going to happen. I mean, James is being generous. Not only do we not know what's going to happen tomorrow, we don't know what's going to happen in five minutes. During this service, any one of you could get a phone call or a text that will radically change the course of the rest of your life. We don't know. We are not in control of the future. We don't know what's going to happen. We are extremely and radically limited. I was driving uh, this past week down I-35 South coming from New Braunfels back into San Antonio. And uh, old lady was driving here next to me. I was going the speed limit, I promise, but it was a little bit wet because of all the rain. And the lady wasn't paying much attention or she was just, you know, an older lady and began to veer relatively quickly into my lane. And uh, I noticed it a little bit late and swerved very quickly out of the way. And, you know, it was... I was skidding and making noise, and as I was swerving, I saw this massive gas truck <laughs> just parked there on the side of I-35 South. And, uh, you know, for a moment, I saw all my laugh, life flash before my eyes as I'm heading straight to this gas truck, but I was able to kind of regain control and fishtail for a minute back onto I-35 going fine. But, man, I was breathing deeply. <sighs> I was just reminding myself, you never really know. I mean, we don't control things. And so how can we hear and obey what God is speaking to us here? Listen, again, he is calling us to embrace our limits. The answer isn't just to throw out planning or thinking about the future. The answer is to live all of our lives and make all of our plans with a conscious reference to God's sovereign control over all things. That's what That's what James says there in verse 15. He says, or 14, you're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. That word mist, by the way, that's not like fog, like in the morning in San Antonio that hangs around for a while. That's like, that's like an e-cigarette, you know, think about it. like vaping. That's how long your life is. You don't hang around like fog. You're like one puff of an e-cigarette. That's the word that it means. It means vapor. So the idea is that, is that we are to recognize by faith that God is in control. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord lives, we will live and do this or that. 
So here's the question, okay? Are you living your life right now with conscious reference to God's mastery over all things? Or are you a functional atheist in your daily life and in planning for your future? God calls you to live with conscious reference to him. And guess what? Guess what? That's the best way to live. The good news is that not only is God sovereign, but God, according to the scripture, is also good. He's worthy of entrusting our lives to. And God is calling us to believe and to trust that he is good and that he is working for our good, even when it's hard to see how. You know, that great promise of Romans chapter 8, 28 is so important here. So the question is, can you embrace your limits? Can you leave presumption behind and trust God? That's a part of the journey to wholeness, you see. It will give you a new freedom and a new power to live every day with joy and with hope. Embrace your limits and don't judge people. Embrace your limits and don't be presumptuous. Third, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Embrace your limits and don't hoard money. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You probably noticed there those verses are really strong, right? There's some strong, harsh language there. In fact, it's judgment language. It's condemnation language. And most people who've written about James believe that here James really is talking to non-Christian wealthy people. And I actually agree with that. I think that's the best way to read these verses. But he's writing this letter to Christian churches 2,000 years ago. So at the very least, he wanted Christians to hear what he has to say here to those who put their trust in riches. Really, when you think about it, we usually refuse to embrace our limits via one of two avenues, either by our use of time, which we've already talked about with presumption, presumption, or by our use of money, right? And so James is not saying here that, and the Bible does not say, that having money, even a lot of it, is in and of itself wrong. That's not what James is saying here. But James is saying that the temptation to put trust in money is deeply ingrained in each of us. And I think it's also clear that the scriptures say that it's harder to avoid this temptation for those who have plenty than for those who have little. James's main point is that we refuse to live wisely. We refuse to embrace our God-given limits when we hoard money. I mean, look at those verses there, one through three. All of that language there speaks to the idea of just sort of stockpiling your own stuff, your own possessions, keeping it all for yourself. And James is saying that that's going to rot. Those garments are moth-eaten. The language of corrosion there is speaking to how foolish it is to hoard And so another question to ask ourselves here as we wrap up with this last point is, is why do we do that? You know, we've talked a little bit about why we judge people, why we live presumptuously. Why do we tend to hoard money? Well, people do it because they are looking to money and not to God to give them either security or happiness or both. Basically, their functional God is money. And as usual, James is echoing the teaching of his brother Jesus here. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, he writes this, or he says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or as Jesus says in Luke 12, A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
So hoarding resources, being stingy, using all of our money for ourselves, that is a sure sign. Listen, that is a sure sign, maybe the clearest sign of all, that you are not embracing your limits, that you are not living proximately, that you are banking on this world and not on the world to come. Now, I know a lot of us at this point think, well, pastor's talking to rich folks now, so I can just kind of check out. No, I can start doodling. This isn't really relevant to me. Um, Interesting, I I was coming across, I came across this magazine article this week. I think it was from Forbes or Fortune or something like that, where they surveyed a bunch of people that have at least a million dollars of assets just in like investment accounts, not like retirement. They have basically a million dollars plus just to play with. And um, they asked all kinds of questions to these people. And one question they asked in this survey was, do you consider yourself wealthy? And only 40% of these people, 40% considered themselves to be wealthy with a million dollars of just sort of play investment money for E-Trade or whatever, right? And so that speaks, I think, to the idea that none of us in and of ourselves really consider that this is relevant to us. Let me just encourage you. Think about this from a global perspective for a second. And from a historical perspective, listen, if right now your total, if your total household income is $25,000 or more, you are in the top 2% of the world globally. So let's be honest. The vast majority of the people in this room are rich relative to the rest of the world and relative to the rest of history. James' writing here is relevant to us. We are without question the richest nation and the richest Christians in the history of the world. And so here's the question. Where is your real treasure? Are you storing up treasure for this life or for the next life? Think about it this way. Ask yourself how you will wish you had spent your money and your resources when you're on your deathbed. When you know you're about to die and you look back on your life and you think, I want to know, I I wish I had spent my money this way or done this with my resources. And just start living like that now. That's in a sense what James is calling us to here. And interestingly enough, when we limit ourselves in the way we spend money, we actually have healthier lives. We have more complete lives. You know, money is like fire <laughs> or water. You know, both are important and necessary for life in a lot of ways. But in large, out of control, and unrestrained doses, they're lethal. And they can destroy everything in their path. I mean, really, think about it. Think about your own life. Typically, people with more and more stuff do not have less anxiety or worry. They have more anxiety or worry. The great theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote this, earthly goods deceive the human heart into believing that they give it security and freedom from worry. But in truth, they are what cause anxiety. When we lived in a house in Tucson, it was a rental house. It was a fine house, nice place. And uh, Tucson's the desert, so you don't really have a lawn. I I would rake the dirt every now and then, and that's rearrange the rocks. That's about it. I didn't, I mean, I didn't have a deep level of anxiety about our home. I mean, we wanted to keep it looking nice and make our landlords happy and all that stuff. But then when we bought a house, when we moved here, where do you think my anxiety level regarding our house and our housing situation went up or down? It went up. I'm like, oh my gosh, I own a little piece of Texas real estate, which is awesome. That's a great thing. Uh, God bless Texas. But 
I feel more anxiety. I feel more stress. The more stuff we acquire, the more things we have, it's not going to make us free or happy or less stressful. It increases our anxiety. And so as we wrap up, think about it like this. The degree to which you can be open-handed with your possessions, the degree to which you can be open-handed with your money is a reflection of the degree to which you are trusting your life to God. It's a reflection of the degree to which you were embracing your own limits. Can we ask ourselves this? How generous has God been with us? His lavish generosity to us in giving us Jesus Christ in the death and resurrection, it's unlimited. Because his own love and care for us is unlimited, James is calling us to rest within our own limits. Because God's goodness will always sustain and keep us, we can loosen our grip on the resources that we think foolishly will sustain and keep us. When we can see by faith that God has given deeply of himself to secure our freedom and life, then we can begin to give deeply of ourselves and enjoy the freedom from slavery that trying to live without limits brings. You know, the bottom line is this. Do you trust yourself or do you trust God? Those who are following Jesus and those who are becoming whole people are increasingly living a life where their trust is in God. And therefore, they're increasingly living a life where they're embracing their own limits. Can you believe that? Can you embrace that by faith this morning? Trying to live life without limits is exhausting and devastating to ourselves and to others. God is calling us to embrace our limits and to become whole. Or as one theologian has written, we become more whole as we unburden ourselves, as we let go of what we thought we needed in order to experience what we already have. May that be true of us as we seek to let go of judging others and trust God, as we seek to let go of controlling our own destinies and trust God, as we seek to let go of cramming as many resources into our life right now as we can and trust God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray.